Now in its third year, it's a yank on the footy with Craig Wessels talking about the greatest game on the face of the earth. Sit back and enjoy, everybody. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 196 of A Yank on the Footy. I'm Craig Wessels, coming to you from Sandusky, Ohio, and thanks for giving the episode a listen. In this episode, part one of a two-part interview, I am joined by former Kangaroo player and marketing manager, Barry Cheatley. This was an absolutely delightful discussion. I... I truly enjoyed sitting down and, uh, and, and talking with Barry, a, a, a fine gentleman, just an absolute treat to talk with him and uh, hear the wonderful stories that he had to share. And uh, I will be releasing part two of this interview very, very soon, probably within the next 24 hours, uh, as I'm working on getting both of these uh, up and ready to go. I did leave it with a little bit of a cliffhanger in our interview, which... Uh, I don't think I've ever done a cliffhanger before, and I'm not a true crime podcast, although that's the one, the type that I love to listen to, but uh, I kind of leave you hanging at a point where you have to come back for the second ep episode of this one in order to find out what happens with it, though. So folks, don't forget that if you uh, want to get your local footy club getting a shout-out during an upcoming episode, drop me a note uh, via email, shoot me a message over on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. You can find links to all of those things over on my website, yankonthefooty.com. I do hope you'll head over there and get signed up on my mailing list. I do hope that you will also consider uh, if you've got a great story to tell. And again, with the, uh, the men's comp winding down here in the next few weeks and the women's comp ramping up, I still plan on doing interviews throughout the... Uh, the summer months in Australia. So if you've got a great story to tell, I absolutely would love to talk to you. So please head over to my website, yankonthefooty.com, and register as a guest. Now, today's club of the episode is sponsored by the TV channel. And TV is run by Kim Harrison, as we call him here, uh, Mick Aussie, uh, in North America. He has spent uh, the last two decades and a little bit more uh, running his sports comedy channel, talking about the NFL, the Canadian Football League, the AFL, of course, as well as the NBA, the NHL, and I think even a little bit of baseball from time to time. Uh, he also appears regularly on Sports Grid TV with Gabe Morenci, and uh, Mick was a terrific footy player himself uh, in South Australia as well as in the Northern Territory. And this week's club of the episode are the Redan Lions of the Ballarat Football League. And this was actually a club that Barry Cheatley played for in his uh, youth, the Lions were founded back in 1871, and I can't recall, you know, I've been doing it, uh, you know, shout-outs to clubs, to local footy clubs, if you will, for quite some time on the podcast. I can't recall one that was founded earlier than 1871 that I have mentioned. And if you happen to have one, please let me know, because I'd love to give them a shout-out. Uh, collectively, they've won 59 premierships, including 11 senior premierships. Uh, the Lions do play their home games at the City Oval in Ballarat, and hopefully you'll check out their website. I'll put a link on here for you to check that out. And let's go ahead and dive into my first part of the chat that I had with Barry Cheatley. I think you're going to enjoy this. If you're a Ruse fan, I think you're going to love it. If you are somebody who's been following the game for several decades, he spent, uh, well, we'll get into it, spent quite a bit of time working 
for the Ruse after he is, after his playing days were done. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am absolutely thrilled to have my guests joining me this morning. Uh, he's described as uh, on the back of a football card that I saw, a hard-nosed fullback for the North Melbourne Football Club in the late 50s and early 60s. And he later on went to uh, lead the marketing department of the North Melbourne Football Club beginning in the 1970s into the early 1990s. I am thrilled to welcome Barry Cheatley to the podcast. Barry, thanks so much for taking time out of your morning, sir. My pleasure. This is this is a, a going to be a, a great time. I, I want to give a big shout out to your your daughter and to Dom uh, for helping to set this up. Now, you you began playing, and and, and I consider myself to be a, a, almost a senior citizen myself. I'm 59, um, so you started playing a couple of years before I was born, but. Uh, you debuted with the club in 1959. Uh, got your first two games, both of them wins, if I if I read that correctly. Well, it was an unusual uh, situation because uh, I had been living in a country town called, uh, well, it's really a city with well over 100,000 people, but called Ballarat. And uh, and uh, whilst I had previously signed to play with another club, that particular uh, they called it a form four. It had expired, and uh, through friends that I knew in Ballarat who had already played with North Melbourne, I went down to a training session early in 1959. And at about the same time, I had enrolled and been accepted to join the state Victoria, the Victoria Police Force. And I went to a training anyway. To make a long story short, I signed to play with uh, North Melbourne. So, but I I had six what they call six match permits from my team in the country. Uh, to play uh, that first year, so I, uh, uh, so I did. They didn't uh, give me my clearance to play, so I played four with what we call the reserve eighteen, and the fifth and sixth rounds of that particular season, fifty nine, where they'd done very well the previous year, nineteen fifty eight. Um, I was on a reserve. I was on what they called. They've changed the rules now, but I was on a reserve on the beach. In other words, nineteenth right, and twentieth right. man. And the first game was round uh, on the twenty. It was round. Five was against a team called Fitzroy at Arden Street. I didn't actually get on the ground at all uh, that particular day as reserves. I did the following week, uh, and yes, they were wins, but not uh, <laughs> not with me participating. <laughs> and then I, then I went back to play um, where I could with my original team. So I my first full season was was to be 1960, um, and I started with uh, my first senior game as such, named in the team and okay. played in the team in uh, round two of 1960. And uh, uh, I started in another position, but at quarter time, I shifted me to fullback, uh, the position to fullback, uh, right back in uh, saving the goals, in other words. And uh, uh, that's where I stayed for the next 79 games, making a total mm -hmm. of 81 between 1960 and 1964. And Craig, uh, I often get asked, um, what sort of a player I was, and I, I've, I've pinched a, a statement from a, a late great, no, well-known player here in Australia from Richmond called Jack Dyer, and he once described another player as, and I like the saying, so I class myself as a very good, ordinary player. Okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. So you're, so you were above average. Well. Yes, I think you could say that. I never got okay. dropped. Uh, I never lost my position. So, okay. yeah, very good. So, I enjoyed all that. It was that I had the opportunity to play with and against some very, very well known 
uh, players, which I often mention, not, not today, it's not appropriate, but uh, type situation. But uh, I was very fortunate. People say lucky, but I was just very fortunate to be able to play with and share the field with so many well-known then, of course, players, many of whom are still alive, although they're getting elderly. Uh, I'm, I'm closer to 84 than, than 83, but that was my uh, playing days. And then uh, I actually was only 25 when I retired because I was working at that stage. I'd left the Victoria Police Force, the State Police Force, and joined an American insurance company, okay. uh, which was only new into Australia. And uh, many of your listeners, uh, I would be surprised if somewhere along the line they might contact you. I worked for a company called the Combined Insurance Company of America. Uh, later on, we, they changed the name in Australia to Australia, but it was started, the founder of which was a very well-known American who uh, lived to a ripe old age, I think, of about 100. And if you Googled him yourself at some time, a uh, great author and a person called uh, named uh, W. Clement Stone. Uh, okay. who was associated with a guy called Napoleon Hill. Um, and Napoleon Hill was the author of a book called Think and Grow Rich, self-help book. And I was very fortunate to him. He taught a great uh, culture. They had a great philosophy based on the PMA, positive mental attitude. So, yeah, I'd be very surprised if some of your listeners uh, uh, didn't either work for and or know someone that worked with in America with the Combined Insurance Company of America under okay. w, w. Clement Stone. So, yeah. So I went to Sydney then uh, after a couple of years, and that's where I went for seven years. Our children were born up in Sydney, and then I returned back in 1970, mid-71. And later in 71, uh, I was appointed the uh, full-time, well, I had a different title, but we'll call it marketing manager okay. for my first full season in 1972, Craig. And right. my, my, my job was simply to raise money uh, to market the club, yes, but more so to raise money from from uh, from sources outside of the normal sources of income that the club had at that particular time. Okay, okay. So, um, back to your your playing days here, just yep. a, a little bit. Uh, yep. You, you know, you played basically, you know, five seasons. You average average around sixteen games a season during during that time. Yes. Um, yes. Now. When you said that 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 first year, you mentioned that you were only allowed to be contracted to the VFL for six games. So you That's were right. you were still tied to the to the local club, right? They said, "Go ahead and explore, see if you're good enough, see if you're above average," as we talked about, um, and see if if, if you can, uh, you know, maybe you know, fit in there, and then maybe next year you can take that spot. But we're not ready to quite give up on you because you signed on to play with us, correct? Well, yes, that, that's one way of looking at it. The, okay. the, the truth of the matter was that uh, I knew about the uh, um, situation because the club had been very successful uh, just prior, particularly the last, the, the previous season in 1958, they'd made the final, we had a final four then, currently it's a final mm -hmm. eight, but um, what, you, what you call over there, the playoffs. And um, I couldn't see myself really uh, in the team uh, on a constant basis because of that success. And I think they put me on the bench uh, at that time to sort of, um, I don't know, to assist in, in, in making a decision that, uh, to entice me uh, to, to uh, hope, hopefully my club uh, would clear me to play. But I was happy not to because I couldn't see myself. As it all turned out, well, I will never know. We did have a lot of injuries and I probably would have been able to play several games that year. But what actually happened, history proves, 
I didn't, and I was granted the clearance at the end of that year. I had a good rapport with uh, my club, and I still go and see some games uh, uh, with that particular club called Redan, uh, in the Ballarat Football League, about a, about a hundred k's from uh, from Melbourne, and uh, so yeah, so my first uh, full season was was nineteen sixty, and yes, I've averaged about that. I only missed a, a few games from uh, injury. I think I had two seasons where I played every game, being mm-hmm. eighteen. We didn't play in the finals, but uh, yeah, so that was my uh, my time as a player uh, with the club that I was later uh, to work full time for. So who was the who was the the toughest opponent that you ever faced? Who was who was uh, the player that you went up against that you were you know and getting ready for that first bounce? You're like, oh my goodness, this is going to be a nightmare. Yeah. Well, uh, I, that's a very good question, uh, Craig. And uh, yes, uh, I, there were several, and I don't even put them in order, but probably um, the late uh, well, a guy called John Peck, P.E.C.K. played with Hawthorne. I played against people like Doug Wade, who was then with Geelong, the Cats, but then later, strangely, came to North Melbourne under the 10-year rule. Um, guy called Ron Evans, who later became the uh, chairman of the uh, Australian Football League. Um, and uh, or even people like Murray Wiedemann from Collingwood and uh, Gary Young uh, from, uh, from Hawthorne, Bill Young from St Kilda. So um, there were just a few that I played against but probably in answer to your question um the toughest player uh he called a spade a spade himself was probably john peck i think i was able to hold my own against uh, those people uh those players etc okay. but it was uh, yeah so we did a bit of hay work beforehand uh, probably not to the extent of where we'd be all done for you nowadays but uh, yeah, we always knew who we were going i always knew who i was going to be my opponent would be uh, the following week because it was pretty obvious uh, if they're a recognised full forward, the person responsible for kicking goals and contributing there too. Um, yeah, so. Well, yep. So looking at the, the game in the present day, and I'm not sure how much uh, football you watch today. Um, oh, I watch uh, I watch okay. a lot. Okay. A lot on television and I go to all of our, just about, not interstate nowadays, but uh, I try to go to all of our, the North Melbourne Football okay. Club's home games here in, in Melbourne. So I, I watch a lot of football, uh, both live and on television. I don't quite enjoy that, but uh, oh, the games are just so... The game played, or the playing the worker, is just... Today, they're, from my era, the game's just so much faster. They train a lot harder. They're full-time uh, players, um, some of whom are earning... Well, I think the players cap in... In my team's cases, I'm not sure what the total is, but I think divided by 42, and you're talking about 350,000 Australian dollars per year, some of whom are getting uh, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars uh, Australian dollars a year uh, to play. But uh, the skill level, uh, mind you, it, it's gone fully professionally. My day uh, of playing, um, the base rate was <laughs> very, 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 very low. And everyone had a full-time job. So it's become tremendous change. So today the game is so much faster. They're so much fitter. The skill level where they, uh, they, or most players can kick either feet, hand pass either hand. It's, it's uh, their fitness level is just so much. And I guess that would be true when you look at say, even gridiron, take that as the example over there. Uh, Would would you, would you say that the players today in gridiron uh, from 60 years ago are a hell of a lot fitter i would uh i would say that a lot of them are i mean there you know there are uh, 
they're a lot larger in many cases yes. because you know you have you know you have you know offensive linemen who were there blocking who you know some yep. of them are you know 330 340 yes. pounds yeah. i mean they're 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 yeah. large human beings yes uh, yeah so is there anybody in the game today that you watch that you that you're watching them playing defense and you're thinking to yourself that looks a little bit like how i played the game is anybody that you think uh, you? yeah uh <sighs> I guess there are, but it's just so different. Uh, the difference being uh, that in my day and preceding that, and for a little while after, we call it one-on-one, um, where where I, I'd be playing on a full forward, being position being full back, mm-hmm. centre half back would play it on the centre half forward. So it was one-on-one. I'm not saying there are only ever two people contesting the ball, going for a mark or whatever. But nowadays, that's one of the big changes where it's become so, so much more team sport with so many people. In fact, uh, I don't particularly like it, but there are several times during our games where all of the 36 players, 18 on each side, are on the field and they're all in one half. Uh, uh, because there's no restrictions, you can right, right. play anywhere on the ground. Um, I think, to, and therefore, to, to, to most people's thoughts, it's overcrowded, and I reckon they, in due course, they should consider changing and ensuring that X number of players remain in one half of the of the ground. And you'll often they often sort of say that, but that's the way it is, and yep. that's the well, way it's played today. And I think, in a way, they they try with that six 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 rule. They tried to do that yes. sort of thing because yes. maybe maybe their their thinking is is that. Uh, you know, the, the players that are at one end of the ground are thinking, well, I don't want to waste an awful lot of energy to, you know, to, to run 150 meters to get inside the other 50 meter arc to just turn, have to turn around and come right back again. Yeah. So yeah. Maybe- <laughs> well, it's changed. It's, such, it, it, it's really, that's probably one of the, the biggest changes. It's just so much faster. And, um, oh, yeah. I mean, and the, the, the difference in training, but we are talking in my particular case, you know, 60. 62, 63 uh, years ago. Right, right. Um, but they're just so much fitter, and it's it's an entirely uh, different different uh, game. Uh, and there's so much more involved, or there seems to be, and there's more uh, assistant coaches. There's, uh, mm-hmm. I think it's overcoached uh, sometimes, but I mean, that's that's the way it is. And um, I suppose that would be true in many uh, other sports. But become very, very much more professional and being full time. That's the biggest difference, Craig. One of the biggest differences. All the players nowadays, I wouldn't, because they're all very well paid uh, as such, and there's no need for them to have a profession besides. Some of them, however, along the line are being a lot, uh, once they smarter, they are looking ahead because uh, they're going to retire. Uh, sometime during their early 30s, they're, right, they're right. about, they're about right. there too. And they should give consideration, which the clubs do provide uh, a, a, a situation where they should be considering what they what they do and they get financial advice, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But the game is in good uh, good hands whilst we, uh, <laughs> I think it's over-administrated perhaps and they change the rules from time to time, in my opinion, for the sake of changing Some- but that's Sometimes, the way it is. That's Sometimes the it is. they change the rules with during a, during the course of a game. And well, not so much <laughs> in the yeah, course of a game, but that they have. You're quite right. At, from time to time this year, uh, they've actually changed the rules uh, week by not week by not every week, but one week they'll have uh, their interpretation of a particular right. rule. Uh, uh, one just recently was uh, was around the uh, around the next situation. Well, that's always been in, mm-hmm. but then what some of the players became very skillful at doing 
was to drop the whole body and put an arm up so that when the fellow uh, tackled him, uh, you know, it, it automatically went around his neck and they were, they were, they were, uh, whatever the word is, yeah, high sta sta staging for a yes. free kick. Yes. Well, then they changed that. And, and then the interpretation, and I think it even confused some of our, what you call referees, uh, judges, we call them umpires. But anyway, be that as it may. Um, so, that's, but they'll sort that out and uh, eventually. So it's, it's but it's still a very skillful game. Okay, so you, you worked for yep. a, a few years, before you, before you got into the insurance company, you worked for a few years in law enforcement. Yes, I... I uh, so how, how, I, I was I was living in Ballarat and I was educated there. I went to, to high school and then I had a, a, a couple of jobs as, as a clerk, a junior clerk, C L E R K, mm -hmm. uh, paper paperwork. In other words, I suppose a lot of people would have become accountants uh, on a, a wholesale grocery and also what's known as Victorian railways, uh, working for the Ways and Works branch of the railways before I joined the police force. And then after three years, I felt that uh, I could better myself. So that's why I left to join this uh, newly, uh, new, new in Australia, uh, uh, Combined Insurance Company of yeah. America, um, who later on sold other insurance, but initially in Australia they sold, they sold what was uh, an accident insurance policy, um, which we, uh, which we sold in volume by calling on business houses between nine and five. And uh, anyway, that's a, lo a long story. And did quite well with them. I had nine years with them and uh, learnt so much. So it was a good education. Uh, Craig, when I fill out the appropriate forms, which are all nationalities you would do, would do when they go from one country to another, uh, whether you're on a cruise, aeroplane or whatever, the little form for customs you fill out. And one of the things they ask you for naturally with your name, passport number, et cetera, et cetera, they say, they say occupation. I've always very proudly put salesman there you go okay so did you ever you know real quickly before you know we'll, I, and i do want to yep. get to the the insurance stuff there but did you ever have an, an encounter as a police officer with a supporter of the ruse who you know maybe was uh was giving you a hard time yeah because you you weren't working as a police officer during the season were you or was that at during the oh office? yes yes uh, oh so it was a full-time it was a full-time so, job with, so it was so so, so if you had, if you had a, if you had a great game and you were, you know, you were, uh, you know, arresting somebody for something as, as you're, you know, you're, you're reading them their rights and you're putting the handcuffs on them and you're telling them, you know, Barry, you really had a fantastic game the other night. That was, you know, I'm so glad I was able to be at the stadium. And do you think you could let me go? Or did that sort of thing ever happen? <laughs> well, no, no, it didn't because they okay. were two separate things. I mean, it was just, uh, they were two, yeah, two, two, but that was my full-time profession. Mind you, all the people, particularly the opposition, not when I say all of them, most of them knew and used to get, uh, when it was, a, a, when the ball was down the other end of the ground and, and, the, and the crowd wasn't as large and or there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, noise, uh, you'd get the, uh, I'd be described as get off the ground mug copper where the policemen weren't known <laughs> as coppers or, you know, but I mean, you took it all the ground. Most times you didn't hear them because you were concentrating oh, yeah. on, yeah. in my particular job, on on playing on the, the full forward to, uh, uh, my, my job was, of course, to uh, to limit uh, uh, him uh, to, to not kick any goals, right, uh, right. Which, occasion, which occasionally happened. And uh, that was my job uh, as, as a fullback, as, as a fully what you call offensive player, a defensive player, sorry. 
uh, etc., etc. So, no, two separate uh, things. No, and I never had any situation. It was only three years, but it was yeah. great. If I had, I've always said that if I had my time over again, my life or again, as I said earlier, closer to 84, I would certainly still join the police force here uh, because, and I think a lot of people listen to your program there uh, that have either in or have, say, been in one of your state uh, police forces and maybe left or alternatively spent their entire career. Um, but I had my time over again. I certainly would have, again, joined the police force. Tremendous training. You learn so much, uh, the disciplines and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, and there's so many different branches and, and uh, yeah, I mean, no, law no, enforcement, no. which you emphasise a lot, you know. So, but it was a very pleasing uh, time and I and I, I often talked to some of my squad members. Uh, we did four months training before we went uh, out in, right, in right. full uniform yeah. and I often talked. A lot of them have passed away, of course, because I was 20 years of age when I did my training and subsequently graduated in 1959. There's a few of my squad members with whom I did the training still alive, and I talk to some of them very often because we share that particular goal, being in the same squad, being trained. Absolutely, yeah. I I, I do the, I do the same thing with people that I served in the military with. So yeah. Oh um, yeah. So let, let me ask you this: Do you think yep. you know had if you had not left law enforcement to go into insurance, yes, you probably you probably never end up in that position with the ruse in 1972, do you? Well, that's a very that's another another very good question, and and you're quite right. Um, I would not have, in fact, I'm going to be. Uh, I, I have been at a lot of a few speaking engagements over the journey, uh, not not professionally as such, but I go return to Ballarat in next month of September to speak at one of the sporting clubs and and then uh, one of the things I'll commence with uh, uh, is to our, our, our great well-known coach Ron Barassi I mm-hmm. think he got the saying from someone else but it's a little saying that he had uh, it's 10 words um, and, and all of which have only got two letters TWO two letters of the alphabet in it uh, if it is to be it is up to me if it does, I'll repeat that. If it is to be, it is up to me. That's so with emphasis, with emphasis on the first word, if, I, if. So one of the little things I'll do, if uh, I mean, you, that's a very good question of yours. Uh, so if, the emphasis on the if, um, if I had not left the police force, uh, I would certainly not have joined the American Insurance Company. And if I hadn't have joined the American Insurance Company, where I learned a tremendous amount about selling because the Americans are always very good at it and teaching and et cetera, et cetera. And mm-hmm. with the help of a lot of self-made books and authors and people, well-known Americans, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale being another one, Napoleon Hill. I mentioned W. Clement Stone, the boss of the company. Um, that's where I learned uh, uh, through them and okay. attending a couple of conventions, one of which, the first of which was in 1965 in London uh, at a convention and then in 1969 in Hawaii, um, Oahu, uh, actually. So, yes, if I have not joined the American Insurance Company, I would not have gained the role uh, of raising money because uh, at North Melbourne becoming full time because uh, uh, Alan then, at the time, he was president, Alan yeah. Aylett, and he said, well, look, we need someone. There was only one, one person full time at the time, Craig, at, at all the clubs, one. Now some of them rose to 150, up to 200. That's without the players and right, the coaching right. staff. 
And um, and he said, we need someone to knock, the expression was to knock on doors, uh, to, to raise money because we're known as poor old North and uh, to get off the bottom of the ladder, we need to raise some money and have, have some to be able to compete with the other clubs. So that's my cup of tea mm-hmm. uh, because I'd, I'd had a lot of experience in, in selling. And, and of course it was, when I say easy, uh, I was very fortunate. We started, I, I was, grew with the club. So it was just a pleasure for me um, to join the club full time and play that role because I, it was a job. It was a, a, a but it was just so ple- pleasant uh, to be there and growing with the club where in now my first full season, uh, full time was 1972. We're out of 18 games, correction, correction, 22 games. We won one. O-N-E, one. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I think anyway, I, re- I think I remember John Perry talking about that because that was yeah, yeah he, he yeah. had come over he had come over from Richmond not yes, long he, before he had, that he, he had shown a very nice a very very nice fellow yeah that was interesting he got on to John anyway so that was my first full year full time one game but then whilst I had nothing to do with it but the powers to what say our senior people at the club uh, which were Alan Arnold, Albert Mantello and Joseph could see that things had to change so that's when. Uh, about halfway through the 72 season, they learnt that uh, Ron Barassi, uh, who'd been very successful as a player and as a coach, um, might be enticed to come uh, and join us, which did happen. And uh, taking advantage of the 10-year rule where Dave, Barry Davis, John Rantel and um, uh, Doug Wade uh, came to us. And uh, in our season under Barassi, 73, we, we won enough games just to finish outside of the finals as a final five then and uh, uh, we didn't make the finals but we certainly did in 74 made the grand final uh got beaten by a bit, much better team in richmond which is also john perry's original team right. and then in 75 of course we we're all very fortunate to be part of in my case the off field team where we won our very very first premiership 1975 having joined the league uh, the Australian Football League well, was then known as the Victorian Football League, but now Australian uh, in 1925. That was uh, North Melbourne. So that, and then subsequently in 77. So, yeah. So uh, I was part of uh, the off-field team, which was just, but it was, it, it was a job. It was a, a, but it was just so pleasurable to be part of it and to grow uh, with it. As I say, starting with <laughs> one game win in 72 right, right. Uh, to 75 just a short period of time later to win our first, very first premiership playing against Hawthorne, one of the other two teams that we joined the league with back in 1925, being Hawthorne and what was, it was known then as Footscray, now known as the Bulldogs. Western Bulldogs. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So you said that your, your job kind of consisted of knocking on doors. Is that, is that really what was, well, you know, were you, well, were you, well, you were it really, that was, you it, were reaching out to businesses and that sort of thing. Correct? Yes. 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 Okay. Well, the knocking on doors really was the expression we used. Right. Right. Uh, but, but, but uh, it was, it was, uh, I didn't really knock on it because if I called like I did with uh, the American insurance company selling this, uh, this uh, accident policy in volume uh, with lots of sales, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, based on a formula called uh, we were selling a necessity, which was low in cost, which repeated regularly. Uh, Mr. Stone came up with that. He pinched that formula. There's so many companies uh, like uh, Uncle Ben's with dog's food, for example, Colgate, Palmolive, 
uh, uh, tooth, but da 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 da. And uh, so we didn't have to, we, we, we only called that in those days on businesses, the doors were all open. But right. what it meant was I would call on people, I'd go to see them, I'd ring them on the phone, but I mainly wanted to go and see them face to face. I'd always be dressed with a collar tie and uh, a suit on, no matter how hot it was, so to speak, uh, uh, etc. asking them uh, to join. What we were doing then, uh, because we didn't have a lot of members and or special members, so what we were doing was to, to build our foundation uh, to be a lot wider and a lot thicker on which we wanted to build. A lot of people uh, in business, they want to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, next door, and mm -hmm. they, they get a bit of a base, but then the next minute they wanted to build too quickly, and because the foundation isn't strong enough, it, it, it crumbles. So what we were doing, uh, in short, was that we were getting more and more people involved with the club, uh, hopefully joining as special members, yes, and then also, so we, we, we already had some, um, we had a particular country game, but we had more special memberships. That was my job to introduce, and and, uh, and then we opened it up to to appeal to more companies uh, to to support. And even today, uh, the, the principles are the same. There's there's six major. Um, it's it's very different in America, I suppose, but there's there's six major areas in which money is raised over here, whether it be a football team. Uh, and or uh, charitable organisations and, uh, and they're not necessarily in order, although in football the corporate dollar is very, very important and probably the largest of the six ways of raising money. So you've got your, your corporate dollar, you've got your special memberships, people who are always prepared to pay a bit more, you have the same thing in America, you have um, uh, special efforts, I call them, uh, better word than raffles, but where people participate mm -hmm. in, in a lottery type situation. You have your functions, and I'm sure they have those uh, over in America. Uh, you have business enterprise where you try and earn money outside of the normal sources of income within the club and to go to other people not, not connected with the club necessarily. And I introduced the, when I say I, I have a sixth one now, and it's really, uh, we've learnt a lot from America. And I think it was the Green Bay, Bay Backers. No, it wasn't. It was, uh, it was, uh, to, to, I think of them, it might be some of the bears now. Anyway, the, the side, uh, the, the, uh, the way of raising money, it comes under the heading of merchandise, mm -hmm. merchandising. And some of the clubs here now, I know that my own club does very well, bottom line, from merchandise, heavens only knows what Collingwood would do with their uh, number of uh, members. So that became that became a major source of income. And I'm trying to think of the uh, the Green Bay Packers, but uh, I think quite so, a few years ago in America of the NFL uh, teams, um, one of them was so popular that of the hundred units, uh, well, the hundred percent, forty something percent uh, belonged to a particular uh, club. Because they're very big, aren't they? People might have been the, the it might have been the Dallas Cowboys at one time. Yes, I reckon. I reckon you're right. It was yes, I think it was the Dallas Cowboys. Yes, they were very, very uh, popular. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 yeah. terrible right now. Or <laughs> even or even the San Francisco 49ers mm -hmm. going back to Joe, Joe Montana was it etc. Right, et right. Yeah, and so yeah, so that's the areas of uh, fundraising. That's what I really was a fundraiser, okay. but the marketing. Um, uh, selling, but that's something that we did uh, very successful. And of course, other clubs uh, followed suit. Uh, some earlier uh, that are, and some of the clubs nowadays over here have have on their market. They have different divisions, of course, but uh, on their marketing team, they probably have a goodly number of people 
because um, it's become so much larger and still dependent. All the football clubs here uh, outside of uh, the contributions they receive from the Net Australian Football League uh, need to raise X amount of money themselves through, and, and they are still uh, those six uh, areas of fundraising. All clubs still raise money from each of those six major areas of fundraising uh, that I mentioned. Uh, hopefully, uh, in the near future, there will be no uh, cause to have what I call special efforts. I mentioned it before, being raffles. Um, you know, I just, that, the lottery type uh, situation, I just believe that should go out the door. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the, in the few years that I've been following the game, the clubs, it sounds like most of them have divested themselves from the, what they call the pokey machines. Yes, you're quite right. Some yeah. still have them, but the, in my opinion, and a lot of other people's opinions, uh, poker machines, uh, I reckon they shouldn't have been introduced in this state anyway, but they were, mm -hmm. and that's the way it is. And yeah. I, I believe that poker machines were, which I know, uh, the Las Vegas has got so many of them, but they pay out a high percentage of the, uh, of it. I think it's something like 97% that they pay out again. That's not the same uh, here. But I don't believe the poker machine should ever have been allowed to go into the clubs. Uh, to me, that they were more for other organisations where they right, right. didn't have the same, uh, same uh, income uh, coming in, uh, the smaller people to provide facilities for the members of those respective clubs. Be that as it may, uh, uh, yes, most of them now uh, are phasing out of okay. that. And I think in the near future, uh, none of the uh, AFL teams will have, uh, in due course, uh, any poker machines at all. So some of the things that you began doing when you joined the club again in 1972, these are yep. the kinds of things that are going to be leading to what we now know is maybe like the, the like the corporate suites at the MCG yes. and at Marvel Stadium. Yeah. So, so you're set. So you you were you were basically because you were one of the first people to do this. You were basically the the person that's kind of as you said building the foundation to do this. Yes. Yep. To help these clubs to bring in additional revenue to bring in you know you know the uh, you know and I don't know if if you necessarily were you know involved with like the the signage that's encircling the grounds, you know, where the advertising's on. Yeah, well, you know, a little bit of that. But, uh, but you know, a lot of that there? stuff, a lot of that stuff, that's just, that's way for the, the, the league to bring in more money, which then gets distributed yeah. to the, to the clubs that's as well. Right. So they're yeah. in charge of all that. Now, but back, back then when I first joined, um, uh, and as I mentioned full time, uh, the only club, the first club to do so uh, prior to that, there was some fundraising uh, went on. But by uh, um, uh, in an honorary way, and whilst there was already a uh, a coterie, we call them a special membership in our case called the Northerners, that was there, and they also had uh, was what had already started. A lot of people think I did it, but I didn't. Uh, our our televised well, be allowed to be televised, but our then grand final day breakfast um, was there. Started in 1965-66. So, but my job, uh, and there were a few other little things. Now, and we even had uh, uh, dress, uh, 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 company names on the back of dressing gowns, not even tracksuits. Anyway, so my job at the time was to take was to take hold of the, what we were already doing, make them better, larger, bigger, more people involved, and then in each of the categories that I mentioned earlier, uh, in due course, not necessarily in my first full year, uh, but a little, yeah, a little bit of each. 
my job was to introduce within those six frames, uh, six areas, other, uh, um, give them choice. We introduced more coteries at, 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 uh, at different levels to cater for the people. Yes, we did reach out to companies. In fact, uh, we were very fortunate to be uh, officially uh, the first club to gain uh, a full-time sponsor, which turned out to be a, a company called Courage, Courage Breweries, um, okay. which came from England. Uh, and ironically, in our, the five-year plan, um, they sponsored us in 1974. They started in uh, 74. No, they started in 75. Where they weren't allowed to wear any logos, but if you saw any of our jumpers, um, uh, carriage, they we were able to wear their, their red cockerel, the yellow background on our jumpers in 1976. But ironically, uh, the first year of carriage being our sponsor, 75, we happened to win, as I said earlier, our uh, very first uh, premiership. So what my job was to do, and of course I was full time, so therefore opposed to the previous people, um, uh, there was only one person, his name was Bill Liddy, and he's still alive today, and we often talk about it, but he did it in an honorary capacity. But but I, I mean, if I mentioned the figures that they produced, well, I can tell you, it's in our annual reports. Um, it was <laughs> was less than $20,000 for the whole year, uh, bottom uh -huh. line. Now the clubs, some of the clubs, uh, more so than mine, we're talking millions and millions and millions oh, yeah, and yeah. millions of dollars uh, uh, from those same uh, same um, areas of, of fundraising. So the, the whole game and the number, of the, the size of the memberships and the, the sponsorship and the league itself, and particularly with television rights, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, where now they talk in terms of uh, a billion dollars plus for X number of years for the, uh, the television rights. So it sure as hell uh, grown. So we are going back a little bit. It's so much different now, but but it started back then, yes, and that's what yeah. was my job was. So, so yes, we did introduce some very novel ways. Well, uh, we worked on the premise, and I often talk about it, Craig, is that um, we would look, as long as it was fair and above board, we would look, uh, we'd grab a group of people, have a think, think tank about things, and we, we would think, we would create a situation where we always wanted to introduce something new right, uh, right. into the areas of fundraising. So we think we discuss it and then what I teach, not I did not as a teacher, but uh, I say in short that uh, any idea that you come up with, as long as it is fair and above board, as long as you can answer two, yes to two questions pertaining there to, and here's the two quick questions, and is that A, uh, is it a good deal for the people participating? It's got to be a, a yes by nine-tenths of the people, so to speak. Yes, okay. it's a good deal. And is the bottom line, what stays in the till after a period of time, the okay. net profit, is it consistent with the energies expended, if not in its that first year, yeah. just like in our breakfast, but certainly in our subsequent years uh, on? Is it, and if the answer, answer has to be yes, it's not much use having half a dozen people spending a whole year on a project uh, to come up with a, a few thousand dollars. So the answer would be no. So 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 we end up doing special things like, well, off the cuff, top of my head. Now we had rodeos, uh, which which we pitched oh. the eye to. We had a night at the circus. I heard you uh, had, had an had elephant. Yes, yes. Yes. So that was true. That was true. Yes. So that came out. That was that's very well recorded. Yes, that was in about 1978, 79. And the reason for the elephant on the ground against Collingwood in that particular game. Um, preceding between the two games played was to promote a night we had at the circus. In short, 
that was why the elephant was chosen. Okay. And of course, it's history now. And uh, if you Google, you'll be able to find uh, a film clip of how the ele- when the elephant, it'll be live for you, and it came onto the ground. And then uh, what actually happened in short was that uh, it was led by, uh, we had a cheer squad member on its top, uh, around us, behind its ears, and it was a very well-trained elephant, of course, and the handler looked after it. But when it went up a certain on the other side of the ground to turn around to come back, that was the time when Collingwood, with whom we were playing, oh, came onto the ground. Well, oh, well, the no. Elephant, <laughs> yes, well, the elephant was was probably uh, used to, used to uh, say, performing in front of a three or 4,000 size big marquee tent, tent for a, a camp. Right, but right. Uh, of the 32,000 that were there that day, I'd say that 30,000, that's true story, followed Collingwood. So with a tremendous roar just when their, crowd, their team mm-hmm. entered the ground, and of course the elephant panicked. Yeah. a little bit of, and, and started to took off and we were we uh, myself with a guy called paul jennings who was a great entertainer person impersonator don't we were up in the little uh, box well we were speeches which is pretty hard to say for both paul and i yeah because we could see what might happen uh, with the elephant kept on going and went out from whence it came because the the crowd was so large and we could see some 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 accident ex- ex- so fortunately and the film shows it that the handler incredibly but to his credit, where it was able to control the elephant and it stopped uh, running as such and slowed down. But uh, okay. yeah, so it's, it's well recorded and it's, uh, yes, and people sort of, <laughs> we talk, it often gets a mention uh, in the papers. Uh, even just recently, I went and spoke at a radio program early one morning with some well known, or very well known radio station with some well known people, et cetera, to talk about it. And, but that was that was the reason why the Ellet was a grant, was to promote one of the many, many different projects that we, we tackled uh, to make some money. We had a professional fight night. Uh, yeah. at the ground um uh, we had, had you a had a disco concert. from what i hear too yeah oh yes that was part of the social club we had pop concerts with the uh, with the lead the lead person being at the time was johnny farnham who actually does follow our club and still around and uh, a, a great uh, a great singer etc cetera, etc cetera. so there were many wide and varied uh, ways of, of raising money uh some of which we didn't repeat not necessarily because they weren't successful, but they might not have been appropriate. But I don't ever remember being involved. Some made a lot more money than others, but I don't ever remember being involved in anything. Uh, and I got help. Got help from a lot of people. We had some great thinkers. Right, um, right. Of, of any of any project we have had that didn't make some money. Now we might not have repeated it. Uh, we would take advantage of certain situations. It might have been a centenary, or it might have been some special occasion, etc. But yeah, we were responsible. Um, for introducing many different ways of raising money from what we referred to as extracurricular activities. Mm-hmm. In other words, income coming right, in right, outside right. of the normal sources of, of income, which America would have. I mean, when you talk about super super box uh, sponsor, uh, super box or suites, yes, I personally now have uh, two corporate suites at the Melbourne Cricket Ground, which I lease. My company leases, I'm a one-man band, but leases from what's known as the Melbourne Cricket Club, and I let them out to organisations on a game-by-game basis, okay. including finals, et cetera, et cetera, okay. as a way of just uh, of, of keeping a little bit of work uh, going at my age now. And and I, I, say, I say this, Craig, the reason why I'm doing it is to keep my wife in the manner in which she's accustomed. 
There you go. Have you, there heard, you, that, go. Have you heard that one before? I, ha- I have heard. I have heard that statement. Before. I've heard that line before. Well, yes. I'm semi I'm semi joking, um, but well, yeah, well, that gives me. Let, let me go. Let me go back to the, the the Barassi line there. If it is to be, it is up to me. But in this case, yes. let's change the last word. Going to make it thee. So it's up to thee. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story. So that was one of yeah. So with the emphasis on on if then and uh, yeah, but yeah, there's so many things that you could do it yourself and your listeners. Believe me, you could you could. Oh, I'll give you a couple of other examples to see if. If if uh, and it's true uh, without going, but if my parents uh, early on when I was a baby in arms uh, didn't divorce uh, uh, back, then I wouldn't be speaking to you today. And there's a reason for that because as a result of that, I was brought up by my mum, and then I, in the help of her mother, my grandmother on that side, I took us to a little place called Smilesdale, a very very small country town outside of Ballarat. I would never have got to live there had had that not happened. Then I would not have lived in Ballarat. And if that not happened, I would not have played, been taught a bit about uh, tennis, table tennis and football, etc. Mm-hmm. So that's where I come back to. And my best one, Craig, with the if being the first word, if I had not have joined the Victoria Police Force, which was in 1959, I would not be married to and met my wife, Barbara, who's uh, alive, well and kicking today. And I would not have, I may have had some children later on, but they would not have been called Guy uh, and Simone. Uh, so I say this because I met my wife when I was working, a working policeman in uniform at a particular occasion, carols by candlelight on Christmas Eve in 1961 at the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl. So in short, if I had not have joined the police force, I would not have met my wife back. Wow. So I, I, I was thinking maybe you had given her a traffic citation or something there. No, no, that didn't <laughs> okay. happen. Now, are you, are you, are you, are you married, Craig? I, I have been married for twenty. Well, let's say, years. let's say we talk about your, your marriage. If this was, now, um, if I were to ask you where you were together with your first wife, as an example, and your listeners could do this, I often do this, and I, I, I get the couple together, and I, I position myself in such a way that I can see. The wife's face, the part, the full-time partner, but but so I asked the question of the husband, mm-hmm. um, uh, but he cannot see the expression on his wife's face. So I say to them, uh, by the way, when was the very very first time, the very first time that you met your wife? Mm-hmm. Now you might not have spoken to her, you may have seen her. Where was it? Now, generally speaking, the husbands aren't right, but the wives are. So when I ask the question of people, I look at. So a person will say, blah blah blah. Uh, such and such and I'm looking yeah. at the wife's face and, and she's nodding her head and I say apparently that's not right and um, oh, oh yes it was. <laughs> I went to a so you ask people uh, and uh, you know so now sometimes they are they do agree um, generally speaking it could have been at a friend's place in my in our time over here back in the, back in the earlier days it was possibly at a dance we call them dance on in, particularly in country towns or, or balls and god knows what you know but it, there's a variety of ways that you meet uh, you are but the, most times they once say they disagree they forget about something so uh, so um, if, if you we were if you were talking to your first wife today or I asked that the question would you personally remember the very, very first time you met your first wife, would you remember you, you where you were? A, you have put me in a really bad position because okay. I, uh, and a big thank you to Barry for taking time out of his schedule to sit down to chat. 
Uh, and again, this was the first part of the interview. I'll be releasing part two very soon, probably tomorrow. I may work on it this evening before I uh, head off to bed. We'll see how that works out, though. Remember, folks, you can find everything about the podcast over at my website, iyankonthefooty.com. You can get on the mailing list. You can leave a review, which would be a huge help. If you really want to help out the podcast, leave a review. Uh, let people know what you think about the show. Share it with your friends. Word of mouth is a huge, huge help in terms of getting more listenership. Uh, and uh, if you want to help out the podcast, my Buy Me a Coffee page is over there as well. Uh, you, there's the store page as well if you want to get some gear for the podcast. You want to get a sticker for the you know the back of your back window of your car or putting on the back of your computer, something like that, to help promote the show. That'd be fantastic. And if you've done that, send me a picture of it, and I'll share it out on my socials as well. So, folks... I do hope you'll head over to my website, uh, yankonthefooty.com. Links to all my socials, my Facebook, my Instagram, my Twitter. Twitter's yank underscore on. Uh, I do respond pretty much daily. Uh, if I do hear from you, my school year has started back up. So uh, if you get on the mailing list, the new episodes will show up as quickly as they are released. Now, folks, please look out for one another. Give your friends and family a call to check up on them. Make sure they're okay. Tell them you love them. Reach out. And folks, I do appreciate the kind words and the sharing of the, the podcast and the support that so many of you have given me. Uh, again, if you haven't shared the podcast, just I hope you'll consider doing that because you know this is a labor of love for me. And again, I'm not going to be able to do a door knocking campaign or anything of that nature in Australia to suggest people listen. So your help. Uh, on the other side of the planet is a huge help. And what actually was interesting, and, and I was a little stunned by this, I actually had somebody from Iran listen to nine different episodes of the podcast this month. I've never had anybody from Iran listen to the podcast. That was very surprising. I mean, I've had, you know, 49 out of the 50 states in the U.S. Nobody in Wyoming has listened yet. So, folks, again, thanks for the kind words. And as always, may your dribble kick never hit the post. I will catch you later. This has been episode 196 of A Yank on the Footy. Don't forget that you can reach me at yank underscore on or at a yank on the footy at gmail.com. Again, you can find me over there on Instagram and Facebook. Search out A Yank on the Footy or A Yank on the Footy podcast. And on Twitter at yank underscore on. I do hope you'll consider subscribing and I do hope you'll share the, the podcast and leave me a review. That'd be great. And until next time, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back with part two of my interview with Barry Cheatley. Goodbye.